the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Multi-Ethnic Church, and later we're joined by Matthew Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson. My regular co-host, Brian Fromm, is on vacation. So I am joined by my life co-host, the cute co-host. That is my husband, Kevin Sampson. Kevin, thanks so much for being here with us today. It is great to be here, Aubrey. Thanks so much for having me. Yep. Absolutely love having you. It's been a fun week. On uh, Monday, we were joined by Hannah Gronowski-Barnett, Aaron Barnett. It, that's a young couple that Kevin and I have mentored for a long time. And then uh, Catherine McNeil was with us Tuesday and Wednesday. She'll be back again tomorrow. And um, and then being joined by you today. So this has been a fun, this has been like the Aubrey show this week with my, just bringing my friends into the studio. I love it. I love the Aubrey show too. It's great to be here. And what a great lineup <laughs> of people. I know. Isn't that fun? So, um, Kevin, I don't want to assume that our listeners know you just because they know me. And so um, let me, if you don't mind, put you on the spot a little bit. Can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little about who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm married to Aubrey for 21 years. And woo, woo. Yeah. I keep telling people it's 22, but it is 21, isn't it? It feels like 22. It feels like <laughs> that better be good. It's a good thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have three three sons and a nephew who's living with us too. So that's exciting times in the Samson house. But I lead a, a church in West Chicago yeah. called Renewal Church that we planted uh, almost seven years ago. And um, yeah, so I, I lead a church and excited about what God is doing there. And uh, so that's what I do. So I I do actually want to talk to you about leading the church. That church is Renewal Church, like Kevin said, almost uh, seven years ago. And Renewal Church's vision is uh, to see a multi-ethnic reproducing movement of God in our lifetimes. And, you know, Kevin, I think, you know, there's a lot of kind of churches you could have planted. You felt like God called you specifically to plant a multi-ethnic church. Can you tell our listeners what that actually means and then why you felt like that was so important to do? Yeah, what that means, really believe at the heart of the gospel, um, when we are really worshiping Jesus and recognize his grace and mercy in, in our lives, he makes us part of a family and in particular, a multi-ethnic family. And so you see in the book of Revelation, uh, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness it is the description is every people of every nation tribe and tongue standing side by side really as brothers and sisters worshiping jesus and so um that really is we believe that the church that we're planting somehow god wants us to create a picture of that now of what's to come so that's Mm, that's good that's really what a multi-ethnic church is it's really a, a picture of the kingdom of god to come. 
um, then why why a multi ethnic church? Uh, really, yeah. just a couple of reasons. I, I think when Jesus got a hold of my life, it came with this sense of a mission to the nations that Jesus wanted to reach the nations and was calling me to be a part of it. And so through that, uh, was engaged with you know some people around the world and. I, I think two different things happened. My heart was broken um, to see the way uh, people who are of another ethnicity and another race than my own, the way they were treated. And, hmm. uh, and yeah, it just really broke my heart. And then on top of that, I've been, just been blessed as to have people from other countries and whose skin color is different really invest in me in incredibly transformational ways. And so... But really a combination of seeing the scriptures, the heart of God, and then uh, just what I've seen going on around me in the world. And then just the investment that's been uh, that's been invested in me because of these other people's ethnicity and because of their experience uh, of where they're from has just helped me really just understand and experience the glory of God in greater ways. And, and so that's really why we wanted to plant a church that somehow when we're connected with one another, uh, we actually experience the glory of God in greater ways. That's good. And then Kevin, um, you know, I'm asking you this partly cause I know some of the answer, but what have been some of the challenges, both positive and negative in striving towards a multi-ethnic vision in a church? I think you have, I mean, especially of late, I mean, you have people who are really excited about it. Um, they recognize the yeah. importance of diversity. And I think the some of the challenges are, uh, but th- that means we must, um, especially, you know, white European people, we, we need to really recognize some of the privileges that we've had. And even the way culture works um, is kind of revolves around white culture. So we need to be able to kind of humble ourselves culturally um, to be able to allow other people to um, really express themselves and, and really just be able to listen to their experience. And that's a, that's just been a huge challenge. And, um, but yeah, I think some of the people I look towards, there's all kinds of noise, especially these days. Like there's, especially in the church where you know, the political noise, um, some of the like cultural noise just really distracts us from this, the, the scriptures and, and really what Jesus calls us to. And I think that's been one of the challenges to really help people see um, that this is really central to the gospel and central to the work of God since, you know, God called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations all the way to uh, to Jesus, who's really connecting people across racial and ethnic lines. Um, so those have been some of the challenges. And Kevin, what what would you say are um, what would you say are some of the beautiful things you've seen at Renewal Church as um, God has allowed you know you and the team to pursue this vision? Yeah, I think some of the beautiful things there is uh, there is really a sense of um, when when people begin to kind of shift their identity away from their uh, ethnicity 
and really connect with one another just as human beings and as followers of Jesus Christ. It actually leads to healing in our lives. Um, and it just leads to just a greater sense of um, God's presence at work in our lives. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen, I've seen people really, I've seen white people really look at their history, their family history and recognize the, um, the advantages that they have today um, is really kind of based on their skin color and just really confess those. And it's led to greater relationship and really greater love and connection with, with other people. And it's, it's been a beautiful thing. I think particularly with people of color uh, to be able to be around people who are willing to listen and affirm their experience um, has been really healing for them because there's just, we all share a lot of pain. And when we're able yeah. to really listen to one another and to connect with one another through Jesus Christ, it really just leads to just healing in our lives in all, in all kinds of ways. And um, so, so just, yeah, a lot of stories like that where you're um, just people sharing uh, with one another and sharing their lives in ways that they never thought possible. And it's just led to just greater hope and uh, understanding of Jesus in their lives. That's so good. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Kevin. And we are thrilled to be joined by someone who's actually, I would say, a friend of the show, but also a friend of the Samsons. So this is very, very fun. We're joined by Matt Sorens. He's the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief. He's the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table and a co-author of a new book. We've actually talked to one of his other co-authors, Daniel Yang, on the show before, but uh, he wrote this book with a couple other guys. It is called Inalienable. And Matt, we are so thrilled to have you on The Common Good today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's always great to be here. Um, Matt, for our listeners who may not have heard you on the show or may not be familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I live here in the Chicagoland area out in Aurora uh, with my wife, Diana, and our four kids. Uh, I work at World Relief, which is a global Christian humanitarian organization. We uh, work with local churches really in many parts of the world to care for vulnerable people. Uh, but my work is primarily focused on our work in the United States, which is uh, for many years, decades now, work focused primarily on, on helping refugees and other immigrants to adjust to life in a new place and integrate into new communities and to do so in partnership with local churches. So here in Chicago land, we have three offices that, uh, in various parts of the city and suburbs that do that. And I've been at world relief for, uh, about 16 years now. So for quite a long time. Wow. That's awesome. That is Matthew question around uh, just the title of your book. It, it implies that the American church is really lacking something. What what is the American church lacking that the marginalized uh, really can help save? Sure, I mean we may be being a little bit hyperbolic in that that using that word <laughs> in the subtitle, and we we debated that a little bit. We're not talking necessarily in like a you know, like a like a sociological sense to use a big you know theological oh, word. Yeah. I do think that most American Christians, and if, if you're not in this camp, maybe this book isn't for you, but have at some point in the last few years felt like, gosh, some things are not are a little bit off track with the American church, mm. uh, or maybe just a sense of disorientation. Like, wait, what is it that we're about again? Because sometimes it feels like, uh, at least 
segments of the American church are kind of off on tangents that are away from the core truths of the gospel, whether yeah. that's being distracted by politics of one sort or another, or by kind of cultural fights or, um, you know, by any number of other things. And the basic idea of the book and the title is inalienable. Obviously that's a little bit of a play on the declaration of independence, this idea of certain inalienable truths. Um, but we're not looking at the U S foundations in this book. We're looking at, well, what are the core essential truths of God's word of God's kingdom of his mission of God's image implanted in each human person that ought to be at our center as the church globally. And the subtitle gets to that, that, um, idea that if we want to get back to those essential inalienable truths, or, you know, you guess you could argue whether we've ever had them completely, but if we yeah. want to live that out truly, um, we need the whole of the church. And often the American church has sort of operated in a silo, um, thinking we're, you know, sort of the, the center of, of global Christianity, if not all that there is to global Christianity, we tend to forget that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, including in, in places that have often been not particularly influential to American Christianity, like the mm. church in Africa, which is actually the continent with more Christians in it now than any other, or in Latin America wow. or Asia. Um, and that's part of, you know, the, the point of the book is not to say the American church is over or doesn't matter or, um, you know, isn't yeah. important. It's to say that we are made to be one body with many parts and where in first Corinthians 12 talks about how every part needs every other part. And sometimes the American church has forgotten that. And I think especially in the last few years, if we're going to be faithful to being the people that Jesus calls us to be, we need to be listening to and looking to for leadership from mm. um, voices from parts of the body globally that have often been kind of on the margins. That is to say, not particularly having influence on most American Christians. Yeah. And, and let me ask you a question about that, Matt, and coming from a, you know, Kevin and I are church planters, church leaders, give us some practical steps. Like, I mean, we just, we just did a segment where we talked about how at Renewal Church, we're a multi-ethnic church. So this is a value to us, but I wonder for church leaders, including us, how can we get better at, uh, listening, raising up some of those voices and just general, generally having a different posture than we've had? Yeah. You know, one very practical thing and one of our hopes with this book is uh, we kind of joked, but not entirely joking. We hope people will start with the bibliography or at least like you see that as sort of the best resource out of this book of expanding. Mm. You know, if we want to be expanding the voices we're listening to, certainly that should happen interpersonally. And you all are doing an amazing job of that at Renewal uh, by, you know, by leaning into a diverse community where you all are at in West Chicago. And that's not all that common, frankly, in American churches. We tend to live in even in communities. Communities that are ethnically diverse, churches are usually not particularly ethnically diverse. And there's lots of data yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. so for some people, that might sound like, well, I don't know how to get those people into my church. They can be helping to guide us. One place to start might be to think about what books you're reading, you know, what, hmm. um, what you're consuming. And that's not to say, you know, stop listening to white Americans like me, um, but to <laughs> broaden the voices and, and particularly white American men, that's like the vast majority of, you know, theological books on most pastors bookshelves. Um, there's a lot of really thoughtful um, perspectives coming from other places in the world, uh, from historically marginalized communities within the United States uh, and from women. I mean, we, we, uh, if you look at like who's teaching in seminaries, who's writing th books on Bible and theology, it skews very much towards men and 
men have yeah. important perspectives, but so do women. And God has gifted women with some unique perspectives sometimes as well. So that's, you know, that's one very practical way to just be very intentional about what are we consuming. Um, and of course, the one thing we should definitely be consuming, and this is something we've heard from some of the global Christians we interviewed for the book, is to get back into the Bible. Very often we sort of think like, well, we've read the Bible, we know what the Bible says, and we we kind of uh, skip over daily, you know, spending time in God's word. Yeah. And we've heard that from from global Christians. It seems like that's the American church has sort of moved past the Bible, which was a really sobering uh, thing to hear. Yeah, that's incredibly sobering. What uh, where would you um, have someone start if they're like, okay, I I need the marginalized community to influence me? Uh, what would be a first step? You said read a book. Um, I think, yeah, read your book, Inalienable. And uh, and then where would they begin to like build a relationship? Yeah, you know, I think one, one way to do that, especially for someone in a leadership role, but really for anyone, is just to be really um, intentional about who are the people we're interacting with. And, uh, you know, that might mean for a pastor reaching out to a pastor of a, an African-American church in your community or a, or a Latino church in your community or a refugee or immigrant church and just saying, hey, could I get coffee and learn a little bit about mm. your perspective and what your That's experience good. is like? Um, you know, for others that, you know, for people who maybe aren't in a pastoral role, but just normal, you know, lay people, you know, that some of the work we do at World Relief is helping to facilitate relationships, um, sometimes in a volunteer role, but we're, we're pretty uh, upfront about the fact that yeah refugees who are newly arriving from a new place they have some needs and the american church can help to meet some of those needs but also they bring a lot to the table they're coming with incredible perspectives and experiences and uh, we want this to be a mutual reciprocal friendship that that we can help yeah. to facilitate um, because we happen to know families are arriving at the airport at certain dates and times and a team from a church can be a part of welcoming those folks um, but the goal is never just to you know, to meet needs, it's always to to build that two way relationship where both parties have something to offer and something to learn. Um, and we do a lot of training with the you know church based volunteers that we work with to help really encourage that posture because it's not always natural to American Christians to come into that mm-hmm. sort of setting in with a posture of learning and partnership as opposed to uh, I'm here to save you. Mm, that's so good. And and Matt, with that in mind, I know we don't have a ton of time left, but it was World Refugee Day on Monday. Talk to us about some of the work that World Relief is doing right now. Yeah, it's been a very busy season for us at World Relief. So we're one of nine organizations nationally that works with the U.S. State Department to resettle refugees. And I think I was probably on the show a few months ago when Afghans were starting to arrive. Mm-hmm. Since last August, about nine, about 70,000 Afghans have come to the United States. Um, not technically all as refugees, which is a complicated sort of political decision, but they are, in fact, refugees. They're people who have fled persecution and the threat of persecution under the Taliban. Um, so that's a really huge lift for our country after a season of very few refugees coming in. I know it was definitely a huge lift for our staff here in Chicagoland, um, but has been possible. And, you know, those folks are now in housing and kids are in school and adults are getting jobs. Um, People are learning English. And that's happened with incredible support from local churches in the Chicagoland community and really across the country. We've just been really grateful for the incredible level of volunteerism and support. That's awesome. Matt, where can people find out more about you, your work, and where can they grab the new book? 
Yeah, so you can find more at worldrelief.org, and there's a link to our Chicagoland offices there. And the book is inalienablebook.net. You can um, pick up a copy. There's a uh, our, our publisher of University has a free sample chapter people can read as well. Matt Sorens is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief, the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table, the co-author of Inalienable, this new book we've been talking about. Matt, thanks so much for being here with us today. Yeah, it was a pleasure to see you guys. Thanks, Matthew. Okay, Kevin, I, I want to do something kind of funny, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to peel back the, the curtain of our marriage for a little bit and tell the people a funny Uh-oh. conversation we had recently. So Kevin and I were out on a little walk, just, you know, as married couples do. And Kevin asked me this question. He said, what does the term low key mean? Because here, here's where this came from. We have a uh, 23, almost 24 year old children's pastor at our church. No, I think. Yeah. 24. And so she is solidly Gen Z. And um, that means she's younger than millennials, for those who are curious. And so because of that, she is steeped in Gen Z slang, which is great. She's wonderful. We adore her. She's an amazing leader. But there have been moments in conversation where I have heard my husband, Kevin, actually say, I literally don't know anything you just said. Like, you need to say the whole thing again in a different way. Because she speaks in terms. And one of the phrases that she uses very consistently is this phrase, low-key. Like, I low-key need to go to the store. I low-key, blah, 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 blah. And so you were trying to figure out, like, what is she saying when she yeah, says that? Multiple, the f- multiple options. I was, yeah, I was thinking, is, is right. this, like, <laughs> Loki from the Marvel series? Uh, is that, like, a... <laughs> are we going into the metaverse? no. <laughs> no, it is L O W slash K E Y. Now, er, here's what's yes. really funny is we have our 18 year old nephew living with us, and yesterday he used the term with me. I said, Charlie, uh, tell me what you want at the grocery store. I'll get you some food. And he said, I low key need to go there myself and see the food in front of me. So he came home that night, and I was like, All right, Char, help us understand low key. And he goes, Well, this is this was his explanation. He goes, Well. Your idea was high key. I should send you a list of groceries. So you were like, high key, send me a list of groceries. And I was like, low key, I need to see them. And I was like, this is not helpful. You're not (laughs) explaining this. But I think low key is just, it's sort of a filler word. But like you said, it can mean different things. It can mean subtly or sort of. Like chill. Or just like, instead of that, here's this. Like, it just can mean a lot of things. Yeah, like easy going. Yeah, easy going. Maybe, maybe that's it. Like it would be easier, low yeah. key. Okay. So with this whole conversation in mind, here's why <laughs> I'm telling people this random thing is, I'm gonna give you a quiz. Okay. I found a list of Gen Z slang words, which was probably made by boomers, so it's probably actually not that great. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some of these slang words and see if you know what they are. Okay. Right, are I'm you ready? Lo- I'm I'm low key ready. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> All right, I'm a, I'm gonna high key ask you this. Well, we're gonna start easy, okay? okay? Famo. Famo. What's up, famo? Uh, family. Yes. Yeah, it is what's family up? or like bro. That's yeah, what. Yeah, bro. And, and you might say fam or famo. Okay, here's the next one. I know this one from the K-pop that I listen to. Glow up. Glow up. Yeah. Glow up. Not blow up. 
glow up. Yeah. Glow up. Like, oh yeah, this is like, put the lights on. We're going to light this thing up. It's going to glow. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, that actually is a really good guess. That is not what it is though. It's like a makeover oh. or a transformation. You're going from bad to good. You're next leveling. Oh, okay. You're going to glow up. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's the next one. Stan. Stan? Stan, yes. Stan. Uh, could yeah. you use it in a sentence? Yes. I stan Chris Evans. Chris Evans. Who's Chris Evans? Uh, Captain I... America. Oh, oh. Um, but that's not the important part. Yeah. I understand or like he makes sense. Okay, so I feel like that's actually a really logical guess, but no. Stan is a combination of the words stalker and fan. If you stan someone, it means you're obsessed with them, but not in a creepy way. You Some people, be, Kevin, I don't know not, if you know you this thing. Stan, stan. <laughs> Some some Kevin people create uh, like Instagram stan pages f- just for the people that they're fans of. Okay. So they, they stan. stan them. Okay. Stan? Okay. I'm going to use um, that one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Salty. You should know this one. Yeah, salty. That's that's not new. That's like bitter, like frustrated. Um, like I'm salty over what that person said or did. Yeah, yeah. Jealous can be used. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. That's okay. Um, so here's um, another one. This one I feel like is is kind of old too, but maybe we'll see if you know it. Bougie. Bougie? Oh, yeah. That's like cushy. Like spending some money. Yeah, yeah fancy. I think it comes yeah, from fancy. like the bourgeois, bourgeoisie. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, here's another one. Cap. Cap. Or no, or no cap would be the opposite no of cap. cap. Yeah. Cap. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel like I'm gonna just make something up. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. Cap. What's up, Cap? Like Captain. <laughs> Going back to Captain America. Um, So this one's interesting because I thought this was capital letters, like if you're texting, but that's not it. So it cap is to lie. So it's like you've put a a gold cap on your teeth. You're lying. You're being untruthful. No cap means you're being authentic or truthful. No cap, like straight up. No cap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Here's another one. I don't even know if I'm saying this one right, but Chugi. Chugi? C-H-E-U-G-Y. I've heard this a few times now. Don't, again, I Chugi. might not be saying it right, but Chugi. Ch- Chugi. Chugi? I don't even, mm-hmm. you don't even know how to say it right. How <laughs> you don't even it? know how to guess. <laughs> Chugi is like, it's not at all trendy. Not trendy oh, at all. Chugi. It's Chugi. Yeah. Is it a cabinet? Yeah. Okay, it here's one. This I, I have no idea. Okay, Should here's be. an older one. We'll see if you get it. Camp. Camp? Like, mm-hmm. what camp are you in? Like, who's your people? Um, like, no, that's how we would use it. Camp? That's how we would use it. Gen Z would use it uh, about something that is ironically trendy. So, like, Crocs are so camp. Oh, and I just got a pair of Crocs. You did, so you're so camp. I'm so camp. Yeah. Okay, here's one. Um, Kevin, I, I feel like we've we recently talked about this, so I'm hoping you remember it. Uh sip tea, spill the tea, or what's the tea? Yeah, yeah. Like what's the gossip? What's the lowdown? Yes. Let's 
Let's chat about this. Tell me what's yes. happening. Yes. Okay. That's very good. Okay. Here's another one. Hold on I've a never heard this one. Oh, yep. I hope there's a listener that calls in and says they actually say sip the tea. Sip tea? Do people say that? Sip tea. Yeah. Sip tea. Oh, yeah. That's, that means you're like sitting back and listening to the gossip. Spilling would be you're, you're giving the gossip. Sipping is you're partaking okay. in it. You're listening That's to right. it. Um, okay. Here's one. I hope you know this one, but we'll see. Drip. Drip. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like thick, like dripping with gold chains, dripping with Kind, you're so close. You're close. It is fashion. It is like, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. Drip is a term for like cool trend or style. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let me give you one more. Cause this one is said by some, uh, Gen Zers in our church. This will be the last one. Our son jokes about this word. Bet. Bet. Mm-hmm. B like B E T. B E T. Yep. Bet. Mm-hmm. Oh man, our son is gambling. Is that what's happening? No, that is not happening. That just means yes. Bet. It's kind of like how millennials oh, would say word. Bet. Like you bet. Yeah, but you don't say you. You just say bet. I know. But yep, it means yes. Bet. Yep. All right. So we've learned a lot of things about the next generation and that we are not. We are we are definitely not there, but maybe once we start using these terms, they'll go out of style. So we'll see what By happens. The way, I am for the next generation. I'm excited about all that God is doing in them, even though I'm learning some <laughs> of the lingo. So I, not, we're not those people. We're not, I'm not one of those people who is like those, those young people, blah, blah, blah. I think there's great <laughs> things happening and I'm just trying to catch up. I like that your conscience made you say that. All right, Kevin, one of the things I, <laughs> I thanks so much for being here. I didn't give you much of a choice, but I appreciate it anyway. I love it. Um, one of the things that you and I have been talking about lately is uh, habits, because you're yes. reading a book right now called Tiny Habits. What's the name of the author? His name is B.J. Fogg. That's real. B.J. Fogg. What a name. Wow. Wow. What a name. He's a founder of Stanford's Behavior Design Lab. He's got this book called Tiny Habits, and uh, it's been really interesting. Okay. So before we dive into what the book is about, I want to talk about the concept of habits, building habits and breaking habits. And I I feel like something that I always heard was you build or break a habit in 21 days. And then I heard that changed to like 30 days. And then I heard it recently changed to like 90 days or something like that. But that was always the concept I learned that if you want to build a habit or break a habit, you need to do it with enough reputation that it becomes part of your life. Is that what you heard growing up, Kevin, or did you hear something different about habits? Yeah. I mean, that's generally like three weeks. Um, and then you build a habit. Um, yeah, yeah I've, I've stuff like that, but it was just really like a, you kind of just kind of like grind it out and then it eventually just becomes a habit and, you know, an autopilot, but that's never been my experience. Mm, what has been your experience instead of that? Um, yeah, I, so I bite my nails and ever since yeah. I was a kid, you know, people offer me money and challenge me <laughs> in, in all kinds of ways. And it's like, I yeah. just like keep doing it. And if someone offered me a yeah. million dollars, <laughs> I would say I really want to, but it, 
you'd have to like tie. I don't know. Like you, even if you tied my hands up for three weeks, yeah. like once those things came off, I'd be doing something. I'd be biting my nails. So it just that my you'd be biting your nails that again. Yeah. Those kind of habits didn't work, or those kind of mm. methods didn't work. And I think more, more yeah. like underneath that, I, I'm you know really wrestling with um, how do we spiritually form. Um, people and how are mm, we formed? Interesting. And, and so those, like, how do we like kind of build habits that like lead to just spiritual maturity and 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 growth and and even fulfillment to experience God? And yeah, I think you know you can tell someone to read their Bible for three weeks in a row, early in the morning, and do it, and it just like it doesn't always doesn't translate into a habit. Yeah, that's so interesting, Kevin. I think you're right about that, that when you think about habits spiritually, it's like, I think people go in and out of seasons and they yep. try things, but that doesn't necessarily like form a person's... I, so, okay, so talk to us about this book because uh, B.J. Fogg in his book, Tiny Habits, is is kind of saying there's a different way to think about forming habits. Can you unpack what he's writing about and how it's made a difference for you? So he's, um, I, yeah, I, to unpack, like he's got like a model, just, you can pick up the book, but a couple like of the principles that have been really interesting is you cannot, uh, you cannot form a habit in a judgmental environment or mindset. So like to to begin to form a habit, it, it just needs to feel like there's no judgment. So in a lot of ways, Mm. it's not a theological book, but it, I think just this really helps kind of get at the lies going on on in our head. Like when there's things you're trying to learn how to do, but what are you telling yourself? There's just, you can't do this. You stink. You're, you're not any good. This will never, I mean, there's just. And so he talks about like, like one of the first things is like, it's got to be a place of like a judgment free zone in, in your head or or wherever you're at. And then your habits form uh, when you feel more a sense of success. Uh, And so in a lot of ways, he's like, it's your emotions. Um, So if you want to form a habit, he basically says like, set the bar very low. And celebrate when you achieve that. So, for instance, he uses huh. flossing your teeth. You know, he's like, people will try to floss their teeth. You know, so yeah. I'm going floss, to floss every day. And yeah. you, no one flosses every day. Right, right away. It's, I mean, there's a few people, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know any. Um, yeah. But what he says, if you like, when you're thinking about habit forming, he just says, no, I want to floss, just Say, I want to floss one tooth. Hmm. And so, yeah, do one tooth and, and like, and say, like, oh, wow, great job. I just flossed a tooth. And then, you know, <laughs> move on. So just start, you got to start really small. Wow. And Micro. You, and you need to feel successful. You need to feel hmm. successful. So uh, those are it's just some of the principles that have been okay so that's interesting to me have you begun to think about this in light of spiritual formation because you said before you were trying to kind of make that connection like has that have you come to any conclusions there or any ideas 
in ter- yeah, I mean, I do think like when we're thinking about spiritual disciplines or uh, th- things, habits we want to form in order to like grow spiritually or whatever, it, it is we need to just start with we need people around us and maybe we need to like write it in our mirror. Uh, we just need to start mm-hmm. with like, you are loved. Uh, it's hmm. yeah. You are saved by grace through faith. Jesus has given himself to you. And uh, it's not about what you do. It's just, we need the, like the gospel truth just regularly. So, yeah. uh, so I think that that is a uh, imperative for our lives and even for habit forming. Because I think, so take Mm -hmm. something, for example, like, I want to pray more. People start praying and they're like, my my mind's all over the place. And and it immediately immediately goes to, we begin judging ourselves. Like, I'm not very good at this. I'm not not very. And so to be able to just, you're going to pray with a posture of like, let me just do it for a minute. Let me just do it for a minute. Hmm. And I'll... Hmm. In a, yeah, very judgment-free zone, and then like uh, borrow someone else. Celebrate that. And then just celebrate it, and then yeah, and just start to like stack up some success with it. Mm, um, that's good. Yeah, the, those are some things, and so even with Bible reading, I think when it comes, it's okay yeah, I was going to gonna ask you about Bible reading. Cool. Do you think that's go ahead, go ahead, Kev? I think yeah, one of the lies that I hear people say. Um, is I don't know what it says. Uh, I don't understand it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's okay. Like, you recognize, like, the Bible is, like, it's going to take a, there's a lot there. And and so there are some some portions. But just to, like, you're already telling yourself, you don't know. I don't, you're you're coming from a, a, a place of deficit. So, like, just be able to say, like, look, small like just read read a few verses um and then celebrate that and and don't don't get caught up like do i understand this am i doing this right it's just no just start just read read a few verses and and celebrate it and and know that like the lord will like as you you know enjoy it more and feel more successful at it that some of that understanding will come um, but you'll never, you'll never understand it if you don't enjoy it. And if you don't feel successful at it, you're constantly telling yourself, I don't understand it. Mm. Mm. Um, okay. That's some good wisdom from Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Grab the book. And Kevin, I like how you're thinking about it spiritually. Really, really good stuff. And uh, Kevin, when did I, I kind of asked you, hey, what was, what's something you would want to talk about? And you actually said something that Brian likes to talk about, and that is the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which Brian and I at one point were talking about almost every week, but it ended. But uh, Mike Cosper, who runs the podcast, has recently published a couple more episodes, bonus episodes. And he recently uh, has a bonus episode, released a bonus episode, where he's talking about some of the same themes in Mars Uh, Hill, But here's what he says. Building an institution on celebrity power, charisma, and a spirit of grandiosity attracts a lot of people, money, and a certain kind of cachet for everyone involved. 
It helps them all to feel like they're part of something that's big, a movement providing a sense of meaning and purpose. But too often the movements crumble and those inside are crushed by the podcast or crushed by the process. Excuse me. Um, So interestingly, he interviews Yuval Levin, Roger Berkowitz, and Russell Moore to talk about the connections between the failure of our cultural institutions and the phenomena of rootlessness and loneliness. And I want to play a clip um, that's pretty powerful, and then Kevin and I will unpack it. So let's go ahead and take a listen. I came to realize that this was something that was happening in a lot of institutions. We had transformed our expectations of institutions from expecting them to form people we could trust to expecting them to display and elevate people as individuals on a platform. Once you see that in one place, you see it everywhere. The academy, the the media, the professions, over and over you find that rather than be formative, these institutions became performative. Rather than be molds, they became platforms. The love of the outsider translates perfectly into the kind of entrepreneurial church planter and church leader that's shaped church leadership for three decades or more. There's not an expectation that a pastor should have formally studied the Bible and theology or to have undergone any kind of apprenticeship in ministry or even to have been examined and affirmed by a group of elders. The most important source of confidence in a leader today is simply results. And if the church is growing and innovating, a leader's outsider status and rejection of credentials becomes its own kind of virtue. And so God called me to come back to Seattle. I, I was plankton on a megachurch food chain doing college ministry for about a year, year and a half. And um, then I left to plant a church. And uh, I'd never been to seminary or Bible college. I was not part of a denomination. I wasn't licensed or ordained. I'd actually never been a pastor of a church or a member in a church. So it seemed like a good idea to start my own. Um, <laughs> since I had this wealth of experience to draw from. Uh, Imagine going to see a doctor or an attorney and being told, hey, I've never been to medical school. I have no certifications. I never interned with anybody, so I don't have any references to offer for my work. Now, you go ahead and lay it down on that table. I'll go get my knife, and let's get that inflamed appendix out of you. That's pretty much exactly what's happening here. Actually, it's a little worse than that. Driscoll made these comments while addressing a chapel service at a seminary. He's essentially saying that the very institution that paid for his flights and paid him a stipend to be there is superfluous. After all, he didn't need it. Okay, Kevin. So one of the, like, I thought the money quote there was basically that the church has become uh, performative rather than, yeah, yeah, rather than forming. And I I think there's a lot of truth in that. What, What do you think about that concept? Yeah, just the it's become a place for a person of a particular with particular skills or gifts to try to prove themselves or build their platform to perform mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. rather than. Um, and so, yeah, you build an institution for, you know, your performance rather than for your talent to really yeah. help really rather than a place where we're serving one another in light of Jesus Christ and helping people mm. really grow into the image of Jesus. Yeah. And which takes, you know, just spiritual formation. 
tiny habits like we were just talking yeah. about before the yeah. break. I, I think one of the things that I found interesting, Kevin, is and uh, I'm going to say this in a roundabout way, but I'll get there. A lot of times on social media, I'll get uh, messaged by people who say, I've always wanted to write a book. Tell me what to do. Or I've always wanted to publish a book. How do I do that? And I, I get it. Like it's a dream that they have in their heart. And I do want to guide them and help them as much as I can with practical help. But there is a part of me that sometimes the cynical part of me, like I would not ever call up my pediatrician friend and be like, hey, I want to be a pediatrician. How do yeah. I do it? Like she would say to me, oh, you go to a lot of school. You work really hard. You get the education and the skill set you need. And then you become a pediatrician. You don't just decide yeah. to become a pediatrician because it's a dream in your heart. And that same concept came up in this bonus episode of Rise and Fall of Mars Hill about the church, yeah. specifically around yeah. church planting and yeah. specifically, of course, around Mark Driscoll, who much, most of this podcast revolves around. But the church has become in America sort of the one place where, and Driscoll would brag about this. I don't have a theological education. I don't have training. Maybe I've worked in a church for like a year or so. I'm just going to go start my own church. And it explodes into the largest institution in America for a time. Super influential. And in one sense, that's incredible. Like God does that through ordinary people. In another sense, it's like there's no other place in society where we would be okay being led by uh, having a doctor perform surgery on us uh, letting a writer be a professional person without that training. But in the church, we've just kind of go, Oh, you have talent. You have charisma. Boom. Now you're a professional. Now you're a leader. Now you're in charge of people's spirituality. And in some places that's actually gone really well. That's the hard part. In other places, it has been devastating. Like at Mars Hill, like we're, we're seeing yeah. with some of the SBC yeah. abuse allegations, like We've seen through Hillsong, which I hate to say because I have friends deeply connected to Hillsong, but there are, I mean, there's some things we've done wrong in making the church, I guess, performative based on people's talents yeah. rather than like even the pastors being formed themselves in order to form, to form yeah. other people. Yeah, that's good. So that's I good. guess the question then is, as, as you and I are church leaders, so we're not having this conversation um, uh, theoretically, we're having it... Yeah in real life, what does that look like at Renewal Church? Like to make sure that, I mean, we're, it's, it seems funny to ask because we're such a different monster. Like we're this very local situated church. And yeah. yet any of us at any point could have that tendency to make it about someone's talent, to build it around someone's skill set rather than forming people towards Jesus. So how do we sort of ensure that doesn't happen. That might even be the wrong way to be asking it because that's almost defensive. But how do we have a vision that's different? Maybe that's a better way to put it. What are your thoughts yeah, on that? I think there's a plurality of leaders. Um, so mm. yeah, like we have a preaching team. Um, yeah. Even though I do the majority of it, I, it's, yeah. I don't do the overwhelming majority of it. Um, right. So I think, you know, being able to have a plurality of leaders um, and then, yeah, a lot of it is just, yeah, recognizing um, the dangers of it and, 
just doing things differently. But I, yeah, so it's, mm-hmm. I, people are afraid of it in a lot of ways. Yeah. We have people, it's interesting. You have people come just with like, there's already wounds. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of move forward with care. But I, I think the plurality of leadership, I think at even the time of testing, you know, there's like, if a leader's like, oh, I want to preach, I want to do this. Like, are you willing to, this is what we've done when people say that, um, go, go to, you know, teach in different places. So like, it's not about yeah. teaching on the, the Sunday the you know, morning platform. Like it's, but yeah, yeah teach, in, teach in other people places people throughout the church and kind of prove about your, Jesus and prove your willingness kind of environments. To, and if to someone's serve not all over even if they're and, te- and be tested really as a teacher great and charismatic, then are raised then up will... in that way. That's good. Yeah. Kevin, it's the end of the show. Thanks for being here. You've done great. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for making it so much fun. I'm so glad. I feel like I've put you on the spot quite a bit and you've hung in there. So thank you for that. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. You've made my job easy today. So thank you. Um, It is the end of the show, like I said, and at the end of the show, we love bringing you something that's inspiring or challenging or something to put a smile on your face. And we just had a kind of a difficult conversation about leadership in the church in regards to the latest Mars Hill uh, podcast bonus episode, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And right now we've been in a series on the minor prophets at Renewal Church, learning a lot about leadership and faithfully following Jesus. And so with leadership in mind, Kevin, I'm going to put you on the spot one more time. And um, I know you're working on a sermon uh, from the book of Malachi, and I would love to know what lessons you're learning from the uh, minor prophet Malachi. Uh, such a great, such, it's so rich. And I, I think um, it, Malachi begins with this, you know, messenger Malachi, who is, he basically asks this question that the people are asking, where they're questioning God, saying, how have you loved us? And hmm. it, it just kind of, it really digresses from there. Um, and Malachi's later on in the Old Testament. Um, and so it, we just forget, we forget all the ways that God loves us. Like, it's just, that should yeah. be the, you know, our primary pursuit together to remind one another of the love of God and to help one another and help our just, yeah, like labor to remember all the ways that God loves us. And it's when we, when we lose sight of that, it, it, yeah, thing, everything begins to fall apart. So that first question, the people are asking like, God, how have you loved us? God says, I've loved you. Hmm. How have you loved us? Hmm. Um, really just reveals our just spiritual blindness and our, um, so yeah, I think that the, this, this covenant faithfulness love of God just needs to be central to our lives, our conversations and, and our memory. Um, and, and then I, I think, the uh really the wor- our worship of god is just deeply connected to how we treat others that that's hmm. throughout and and uh, i'm yeah I'm really looking at two things it's you see the marriage relationship and hmm. uh the poor and the marginalized hmm. the, those are just so central to uh we can say we worship god we can say we're followers of jesus christ 
Um, but it really is revealed in the way we treat others, uh, particularly yeah. in our marriage and among the poor and marginalized. That's so interesting, Kevin. That makes me think of, um, you know, Jesus talking about like when he's asked what the greatest commandments are, love God yeah. and love neighbor, essentially. And so it makes sense that uh, the way we love the people in our lives and the people sort of outside of the margins that we would typically consider is a reflection of not just a reflection of the way we worship God, but is a way we worship God. Like that connection yeah. is there. And I, I think that question too, of how God, how have you loved us? I feel like that's a, we're so forgetful when it comes to the love of God, that that's such a relatable question. Does it, does God get angry at uh, them asking him that in the book of Malachi? Like, what is God's response, I guess, is the question I have. Yeah, I think that that's, that's the really interesting part. I think we often think that we can't question God or to express doubt mm-hmm. uh, or even anger mm-hmm. towards God is, like, there's no place for that. And uh, you don't see, like, God doing cartwheels over, like, the yeah. forgetfulness of his people. Um, mm-hmm. But he engages with them. He engages with that. Here's your question. How have you loved us? How And yeah. God's like, Oh, here's how. Um, and mm. I think what you see is God is not indifferent to our cries. He's he actually hears it all. And I think um, there's warning that comes even in that warning and the potential discipline uh, because their lack of the people's lack of faithfulness, the warning in, of it, in and of itself and the discipline is a sign of love. Like God's saying, like, don't get, I'm not going to let you get so far that mm. you're going to forget. Uh, I'm going to, yeah, I, I'm going to, I see your apathy. I see your forgetfulness and I'm going to, I'm going to approach you about it. So that we can um, continue to, so you can move to a place of flourishing within, mm. you know, the boundaries and that I've created and rather than yeah. just, rather than just leave you to, to yourself. And so, yeah, I just think if there's anything, there's an encouragement to be like, it's okay to question God. Um, it's okay to express mm-hmm. your doubts to God. It's okay to even mm-hmm. wrestle and be angry with God. Just keep interacting with God and there'll be a point when you're going to have to give space for God to speak to you. Um, yeah. recognize that like God is interacting with you, um, in all of those, mm-hmm. in all of those, those moments. And so we don't need to be afraid of it, um, in any way. And in fact, it's almost giving us permission to, yeah. to express those things and, and recognize that God does not cast them away. He does not throw them to a side, to the side, but uh, he, you know, firmly at times, gently other times, but he clearly uh, uh, is just wooing them back to uh, really his love and an understanding of that in their lives. Yeah, that's good, Kevin. And for our, for our listeners who, um, 
uh, okay, maybe they understand like, okay, I can, I can question God. I can ask God some of the hard questions, but this piece of like loving other people, the way I treat my spouse, the way I treat my neighbor, the way I treat the poor and the marginalized, why is that an important connection to make for the Christian? Um, I mean, you see, well, you see this throughout the scriptures. It just, if you treat the marginalized, you treat the poor, uh, you, you turn a blind eye to injustice. Mm -hmm. You actually, you're, you're basically uh, acting. It's revealing you're as if you're better than them. And, um, okay. I think that's one thing it's just, and two, I think it's the heart of God is that there would be no injustice. It is the heart of God that um, everyone would have something to eat. It's the heart of God that mm. all, all you know, humankind would, that, that their work and would lead to, um, yeah, flourishing in their lives and their family and their family's lives. And so when you turn a blind eye to those things or when you act like, uh, yeah, yeah. When you turn a blind eye to them, then you're in a lot of ways, you're contributing to it, uh, to their, to the injustice itself. And you're basically revealing, like, you don't know the heart of God. Like you really don't understand okay. who Jesus is and and all that he's done for you. And so that's, yeah. that's the danger in it. Hmm. Um, it's the, you know, the parable of the sheep and the goats when Jesus says, uh, the Jesus, they said like, you didn't feed the prisoner or the poor, the marginalized, yeah. therefore you don't know me. And so, yeah, wow. you know, you cast them away and it, it, like our, you know, our concern for the poor and the marginalized, our willingness to enter into injustice and, and, and all that reveals that we actually know the heart of God because that's where God's heart is. Mm. Oh, it's so good. Such a good word from the Old Testament from the minor prophet Malachi. Thanks so much for that, Kevin. And thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much. We'll for be back me. again tomorrow. Yeah, it's been so fun to have you today, Kevin. I'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. with Catherine McNeil. And for Kevin Sampson, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.